And if you would, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be looking together at verses 3 through 7 as we continue our study of the first of Paul's pastoral epistles. The two letters of Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, offer us a tremendous amount of instruction for the order and governance of Christ's church. In them, in 1 Timothy, we see explicit and practical commands for handling particular scenarios within the context of the local church, like the qualifications for elders and deacons laid out in 1 Timothy 3, and then later in Titus 1, like the instructions for the care and the discipline, apostasy, doctrine, Christian living, etc. All of these things fill the letters with rich, practical instruction. And in the opening exhortation of 1 Timothy, which we'll read together in just a moment, Paul instructs Timothy on how to handle the most prevalent, or at least one of the most prevalent issues facing Christ's church throughout the ages. And that's the issue of false doctrine. In fact, Paul even told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, the elders of the church who would also read this letter, that they would face the very same problem that they're faced with now as they received this letter from Paul to Timothy and also to the Ephesian church. In verses 29 through 31, you don't have to turn there, but it says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's words were apparently prophetic because he now writes to Timothy some four years later to deal with this very same thing, to put an end to the false doctrine that he knew was coming. In fact, this theme is so central not only to 1 Timothy and not only to the order of Christ's church and the honor of his holy name, but we see Paul bringing awareness to the issue of false doctrine in almost every New Testament epistle that he writes. 1 Timothy itself is bookended with the admonition. Listen to chapter 6 in verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So tonight, as we consider 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, My primary goal is to show you that sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion. Sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion. And we will see that clearly under three brief points. The first of which is the wickedness of false doctrine, the telos or the aim, the end of sound doctrine, and the God who has made himself known. Again, that's the wickedness of false doctrine, the telos of sound doctrine, and the God who has made himself known. So let's begin by reading the text and considering our first point. So look with me at 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7, and hear now from the holy and inspired word of the Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus 
so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, you alone are worthy of all glory, honor, majesty, and dominion. For you have created and do sustain all things by the word of your power. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather this Lord's Day, to hear from your word, to sing your praises, and to pray together. Father, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and give us an attentiveness to your word that we might know you rightly, that we might know you as you've revealed yourself to us in it. Help us continually to marvel at the love and grace that you've lavished upon us in your son and the redemption that you've secured for us in his life, death, and resurrection. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So right away, you may wonder why the main thing that I want you to understand about 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 through 7 is that sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion. You may wonder, because our text doesn't deal explicitly with sound doctrine, it doesn't say clearly promote sound doctrine and hold to it or anything like that. It clearly deals with false doctrine and its wickedness, which we'll see, but sound doctrine isn't even mentioned. And while this is true, when we say that false doctrine is bad, we are implying that it is bad because it is contrary to sound or true doctrine. We are implying, we are implicitly emphasizing the needfulness of proper doctrine, of sound doctrine, of orthodoxy. Look again with me at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now remember, the book of Acts records Paul spending some three years with the Ephesian church. He loved them. He knew them. He labored earnestly in teaching them. He labored earnestly in caring for them. And now he's urging Timothy in his place to stay there as a figure of authority in Christ's church, an appointed minister of the gospel, and to charge or command certain people not to teach any different doctrine. The actual Greek word that's used there for different doctrine or strange doctrine, as the New American Standard Version has it, is the word that we get heterodoxy from. You're probably familiar with the word heterodoxy. It's the opposite the contrary to orthodoxy. If orthodoxy is right doctrine, heterodoxy is something else. It's other doctrine. And the, the Greek word is It's You can hear heterodoxy coming from that Greek word. So if orthodoxy is right and 
sound doctrine, then heterodoxy is something else. It's, it's something different. It's something strange. But why is it so bad? I've heard a version of this question before on a number of occasions. It goes something like this. If someone is well-intentioned, that is, they love the Lord, they love God's people, why is it such a big deal if we disagree on things? Why do we get so worked up when someone is off on a point of doctrine? My initial inclination is to assume that they're thinking about secondary or tertiary issues. That is, issues that are of great importance, but issues that don't remove a person outside of the camp of orthodoxy. I'm sure you could probably think of a few. There's the issue of baptism, the issue of ecclesiology, of church government, the issue of the doctrine of election, and of eschatology or the end times, and the list goes on. And while each of those things, those doctrines, are incredibly important doctrinal positions, and we each have a firm and established opinion about them, the bottom line is that you and I both know that there are faithful dispensationalist, premillennial, Arminian, congregationalist Baptists in Christ's flock. That's a mouthful, isn't it? We know that to b- believe all of those things doesn't necessarily imply that that person doesn't know the true and real Jesus. It doesn't imply that they're beyond saving, that they're barred from heaven by those views. To this person, I'd like to tell them that I think that they're wrong, but they're still a brother. We can sit down and engage in discussion, unwinding some of those stances or having conversations about them. But this isn't the false doctrine that Paul has in mind here. This isn't the false doctrine that Paul is urging Timothy to put to death. So what does Paul have in mind? And why is it a big deal? Now, from this text alone, we can't really make out for certain the actual substance of that teaching, and neither is it really my goal, and I want to make this clear. It's not my goal to provide you with a list of everything that would fall under the category of false doctrine tonight. But verse 4 tells us something, something at least, from which we can deduce the heart of their error. It says that they devote themselves to myths, and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. For one, these teachers are devoted to myths, to fables, to folklore that have nothing to do with faith in Christ. They're bringing in some extra biblical spirituality to complement or to add to the Christian religion. I'm sure you can think of plenty of modern iterations of this error. And secondly... They're getting lost in endless genealogies to such an extent that the substance of their teaching promotes speculation or confusion rather than faith in the Lord Jesus. So from this, at the very least, the false doctrine that Paul has in mind is that which distracts or detracts from that which is vital to the Christian religion. The stewardship from God that is by faith. False doctrine is wicked because it contorts, diminishes, devalues, or even denies that which God has revealed to be true in his word and by his spirit. It draws men away from the Christ who saves. Listen to Paul in Galatians 1, verse 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, the substance of the teaching is likely different for the Galatians than it is for the Ephesians, because Paul goes on to address justification by faith apart from works for the Galatians. But what remains true in both of these situations is the heart of their error. And that's that false doctrine is anything that strikes at the purity of the gospel of Christ. There's much more that can be said, but this is the false doctrine that Paul has in mind. Verses 6 and 7 of 1 Timothy go on to highlight the damage that these false teachers were causing. Look there again with me. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying the things about which they make confident assertions. And so these false teachers then were swerving from sound doctrine and its goal, its telos, and in their errors they had wandered away, wandered away into vain speculation. It says that they have no understanding about the things they confidently assert. They have no business preaching and teaching because they are not fit to do so. And whether they intend to or not, the result of their false teaching is treacherous for them and for their hearers because they're drawing others away in their false doctrine. And Paul picks up these people that he has in mind, or at least some of them again later in verse 19, which we'll cover another time. But he explicitly states there that they've made a shipwreck of their faith, this Hymenaeus and Alexander. And that they've been handed by Paul over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In their error, they had devoted themselves to something else entirely. False doctrine, again, hear me say this, is wicked because it draws men away from the pure and simple gospel of Christ. And these particular men were teachers in Ephesus. They were likely elders in the church who were appointed to preach and teach. Appointed to preach and to teach the people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to that. With that in mind, listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2. Again, you don't have to turn there. 1 Thessalonians 2 as he explains the ministry of the word in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. This is the ministry of God's word, speaking, God speaking to his people through the means of appointed ministers. And for a man to take this charge lightly and to teach that which is contrary to what has been revealed, what has been delivered to them, is a grave and wicked error. Such men will have to give an account for every word that they've ever spoken in a pulpit. 
every word that they've ever spoken on behalf of God. Such men will have to answer for every sinner they preached right into hell as they delivered to them something contrary to Christ himself and the fullness of his gospel. False doctrine is wicked and sound doctrine is vital because we're talking about the revelation of God, God's own self-disclosure. We are never to take lightly what God has revealed to us about himself in his word. And for the sake of the souls of men, false doctrine must be cast out of the church, which is exactly what Paul is urging Timothy to do. So as I conclude my first point, here's an upsetting statistic. You're probably familiar with it. You've likely seen it before. But every two years, Ligonier Ministries puts out this poll, gauging the theological landscape of America and of the average professing evangelical. And in 2022, they asked evangelicals what they thought about this statement. Doctrine is a matter of personal opinion. 38% of professing evangelicals agreed. 38% of evangelicals effectively deny every New Testament text that deals with false doctrine because there really isn't a such thing as sound doctrine anyways. Doctrine is just a matter of opinion. You can believe whatever you want. God isn't a bit concerned with us knowing him as he's revealed himself in his word. That 38% may as well throw away their Bibles We have evidence that among that 38% of polled evangelicals, many are teachers who happily promote this garbage. They are men who, to use Paul's words, are without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Kids, this is why your parents are so adamant about teaching you the Bible. This is why your parents will teach you a catechism. They want you to know these things. They want you to know the the basic tenets of the Christian religion. They want you to memorize catechism questions like what is the chief end of man so that you may know how to understand the Bible and the world around you in a way that other people are denying. If you know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, you're already better prepared to see false doctrine, to see wrong teaching. And say to the people who try to promote it to you, I'm not sure about that. What you're saying doesn't seem to promote the glory of God or my enjoyment of him. Your parents teach you because they love you. And they want you to know and love God. So let's move on to consider our second point, which is, again, the telos, the end, the aim, the goal of sound doctrine. Look again with me at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, with this passage, there are a variety of different opinions amongst reputable scholars on what the word charge or command actually means. What does Paul actually have in mind? Some translate the Greek word as they say the aim or goal of the commandment is love. And they take the word commandment to be referring generally to all of God's law because it's followed by the obvious reference that these people desire to be teachers of the law who don't know what in the world they're talking about. But others see that word connected to Paul's charge, the charge, the command, because it's the same word, the parangelias, 
connected to the charge that Paul gave Timothy to guard sound doctrine in the church by silencing false doctrine. And I personally think that it's the latter. Whatever the case, Paul is clearly contrasting what is improper in the false teachers with what is proper. The goal, the telos of sound doctrine is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This love is the manifestation of God's powerfully working through the faithful proclamation of the pure and unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. All of these things are gifts of God's grace, which he is powerfully at work in us by his spirit. And so this is love for God and for neighbor. And for some, our first point was enough to be an entire sermon. You might be happy to hear a command to maintain the purity of sound doctrine and be thrilled with your own diligence, your own diligence in studying the Bible and theology in general. And there's obviously a part of me that is glad for that diligence. But Paul isn't concerned with sound doctrine that has no end outside of itself. He's not concerned with sound doctrine that doesn't have an impact, that doesn't have an effect on your life. Because the Christian religion isn't merely a theoretical or intellectual exercise. And nearly every time that sound doctrine or false doctrine is spoken of in the New Testament, it has an end in mind. And that end is love for God and neighbor, a strengthening of faith, and godly conduct. If you don't believe me, listen to some of these as we briefly look through a few of them. Listen to Paul in Titus 1, verse 16. Speaking of false teachers whom he calls insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. He goes on in in Titus chapter 2 and verse 1 to say, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Contrasting what he said about false doctrine, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And do you know what he follows that with? Instructions for Christian living. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's how to live a godly Christian life in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. All the way through verse 10. And then listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In fact, all of the sin that Paul goes on to list in 1 Timothy 1 verses 8 through 11, which we'll look at next week, is referred to as contrary to sound doctrine. All of the sins that are listed are contrary to sound doctrine, implying that doctrine has a moral manifestation. It has an active manifestation. If that statement is odd to you, or if the statement that sound doctrine ought to produce godly character, if that's strange to you, It might be because you're thinking too narrowly about what sound doctrine is. It might be because you're thinking about doctrine as merely an intellectual exercise to inflate your egos, to bolster your minds. Finally, in in Ephesians chapter 2, after gloriously explaining the doctrine of justification 
by grace through faith in Christ alone, Paul says in verse 10 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, hear me clearly here. We ought to repent when we separate our growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ from our growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we separate knowledge from love, worship, and obedience to God, we ought to repent. Remember Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer in John 17. In verse 3 and verse 7, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To know God as he's graciously revealed himself to us ought not to be separated from our knowing him as our God and our Father. And to live as though we've been graciously adopted into his household in his kingdom. But I want to be careful here. Because I'm not trying to say that there's supposed to be some sort of natural or direct correlation between your study of doctrine and your love for God. It's not that if you just pick up your favorite systematic theology, you're going to naturally and and immediately increase in faith and grow in godliness. That's not how it works. There are plenty of learned men and women with great doctrine whose hearts are cold and whose religion is dead. But what I am saying is that Paul's charging Timothy to preserve sound doctrine and to silence false doctrine has everything to do with his desire that the people know God as he is and that they love him and obey him and walk in all of his ways. Sound doctrine and the purity and simplicity of the gospel message has its gaze set upon the manifestation of the love of the triune God in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine explicates the character and redemptive working of God and ought to draw his people in to enjoy and to know the communion that he has secured for us through the ministry of the Son by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Here's the point I'm trying to make. What you believe has consequences. That's an obvious reality. Here's a basic example of that. If you stood in the middle of a busy highway and you saw a full-size semi-truck driving straight at you, going full speed, you believe that that truck, if you don't move, is going to hit you. In your belief, the consequence is that you're going to move, right? It's obvious. But if in some strange, twisted scenario, you look at that truck coming at you and you believe in your mind, you say, that truck isn't real. Or somehow I'm stronger than that truck and when it gets to me, I'll stop it in its tracks. If you believe that, again, this is a stretch, but if you believe that, you might not move and the consequences for that belief would be dire. Belief What you believe has consequences. It ought to have consequences. If you believe the doctrine of the Bible, if you believe that in everything that you recited this evening in the Apostles' Creed, how then shall you respond? How then shall we live? 
it may seem like an odd song choice. But I couldn't help but think, as I was thinking through this issue, I couldn't help but think of the refrain from Come, All Ye Faithful. And it's just simply this. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. The goal here is not to have you question the genuineness of your faith if you see a disconnect between your knowledge of God and how faithfully that you live your life. There's going to be a disconnect there until glory. Every faithful Christian confesses with their mouth that Christ is Lord, yet struggles with sin. We struggle against competing with his lordship in our life whenever we selfishly choose to pine after whatever is pleasing to us, most pleasing to us in any given moment. But my goal is to have you consider the aim or the telos of doctrine as doxology, as worship, to consider doctrine as the revelation of God given to us in his word in order that we might grow in faith and in love for him. This is the telos of sound biblical doctrine. Finally, on the note of the revelation of God, let me conclude by looking at our third point briefly. The God who has made himself known. This is more of just an overarching pastoral applications to sort of tie everything together here and emphasize again the main point that sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion. I want to remind you of what grace has been manifested to us in the self-revelation of God. I know it's no surprise to you. I'm sure it's no surprise to you. But God did not have to reveal himself to you. It is not essential to his nature to condescend to speak with you, whether at many times and in many ways through the prophets or by his son, Hebrews chapter 1. He was not pining for your attention. He did not need your worship. He does not need your affection or your obedience. He could have let all of sinful humanity run its ruinous, wicked course after the fall, and that would have been fine. But God has graciously lovingly condescended. He's come down. He's spoken to you. He's made himself known in such a way that you can know the God who is unfathomable in his being. You're probably familiar with the language. John Calvin says it's, it's God speaking to us is as if he's lisping to us. It's like baby talk. But God has condescended to speak to us, to show us who he is, and to invite us into communion and fellowship with him, to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's condescended to speak with us, to draw us to himself, and to restore his people to fellowship with him. This is another reason, if it's not clear enough already, why sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion. God has delivered it to us. He has told us what he is like. He has told us what he has done. And he's told us what duty he requires of us. It's an absurd analogy. I already know it. But if your spouse told you, that they hated a certain food. This is something that they've revealed to you about them. They hate a certain food. And 
you decided to ignore that revelation, and every Friday night for dinner, you thought it would be a good idea to make that very dish. Do you honor them in your ignorance of their revelation? If my wife's name is Chantel, which is among the most common and basic things that can be revealed about any given person, and I introduce her to everybody as Brittany, do I have any care for what's been revealed? Do I have any care for her at all? Friends, who God is and what he has done matters because he's revealed himself to us. He has shown us what he is like in his word and by his spirit, principally, preeminently in his son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. To handle the word with such irreverence that we have little concern with whether or not we're understanding it correctly is is abominable. It's far better that we be a people who are so astonished that God has spoken to us at all That every time that we open his word, we are terrified by the notion that we have the capacity to misconstrue or misunderstand it. That we uphold what's been revealed to us about his person and work with such reverence and awe, pleading for wisdom, searching the scriptures and seeking understanding. Sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion because the Christian religion is based on objectively revealed truths about God and his work in creation and redemption. False doctrine then is wicked because it promulgates something else entirely, something contrary to what God has spoken, something contrary to who he is and what he's done. And sound doctrine, or orthodoxy, has then its aim set on the worship of the God who has made himself known. This is why Paul urged Timothy to silence the vain musings of ignorant men who had no business teaching, who did not faithfully fulfill their duty as elders in Christ's church. This is why the purity of sound doctrine is to be upheld and maintained in Christ's church. This is why we should rejoice and tremble every time we hear the words, Thus saith the Lord. Rejoice and tremble. So Timothy and and every appointed elder in Christ's church has a responsibility to maintain sound doctrine and to cast out that which is contrary to what's been revealed, the good deposit that's been entrusted to the church, the sound substance of the faith, to preserve that which God has graciously delivered to us because the consequences of proclaiming anything contrary to what has been delivered to us are grave. And remember, again, finally, the aim of Paul's charge to Timothy is love. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love that issues from a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That issues from the regenerative, powerful working, and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And see then clearly how sound doctrine is vital to the Christian religion. Let me pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise you for you are the God who was and is and is to come. The God who has no need, who knows all things is infinite in your wisdom and power and being. Yet you are the God who has made yourself known to us. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to see what a glorious thing it is that you have shown yourself to us, that you have spoken with us, that you have revealed your nature and your wonderful works to us in your word. We thank you for your son who died on the cross for our sins, in whom we have life and breath, in whom we have hope and eternal salvation. Father, I pray that we would be a people that in the consideration of your word, in the consideration of doctrine, that we would be a people who are committed and who love that which you've revealed to us, who are careful and are handling it, and who are adamant about putting it outside of the church and dealing with it, dealing with false doctrine when it comes our way. Father, we know that you are the Lord who providentially works all things according to your good pleasure and that you have maintained and sustained your church throughout the ages, and so we do trust in you. And we praise you, Father, for the love with which you've loved us from before the foundation of the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.